Thank you, Peter, for that introduction. I've been to QBC several times, I think. Uh, in fact, when my wife and I arrived in Singapore first as early uh, as 2005, we worshipped in this sanctuary, not in this sanctuary, but the old sanctuary, for about three, four months or so. I don't know if you remember me, <laughs> but I, I don't remember you either. Uh, so uh, coming here is a bit like visiting a friend in Peter. Uh, we also have friends uh, in some of your pastoral staff that we have gotten to know over the years, and uh, I'm very happy to be here to share about a topic that actually I don't know very much about, but uh, other than having to teach it uh, in a seminary setting, uh, I don't have personally any experiences of the so-called miraculous gifts uh, so I can't, you know, tell you from an experiential point of view uh, what this is about. Uh, the, the, uh, when Peter asked me to come to talk about this topic, I, I really was kind of reluctant. <laughs> uh, but he said, oh, please come, and uh, he twisted my arm. I came, <laughs> I, I came uh, because he said, well, just come and give us some broad strokes on this topic. Uh, broad strokes meaning it's a survey. And um, when we talk about broad strokes, it's um, trying to, as much as I can and as objectively as I can, represent the different camps uh, that exist within evangelicalism on how they view uh, the miraculous gifts. But since I only have 45 minutes today, I'm only going to restrict my uh, presentation to the topic of tongues. I can't talk about everything. Otherwise, uh, I wouldn't be able to get out of here. Uh, and so, uh, and of course, when you read a book like this, uh, entitled Our Miraculous Gifts for Today, Four Views, I encourage you to pick up this text. Uh, it's written or by a number of uh, four people representing the cessationalist, open but cautious, uh, third wave, Pentecostal, charismatic, and uh, is edited by Wayne Grudem. Now, so interestingly, I was trained by two of these men. Uh, I was trained by uh, Dr. Robert Sosi uh, from the purview of Open But Cautious. And then, of course, I also was taught by Wayne Grudem, who still today is considered a charismatic uh, in, um, uh, uh, you know, in, in that circle. And so my, my journey on this topic has evolved over the years. Um, some of you may be interested to know that I first attended church in a Caucasian church, in a Baptist church. So I am, I was Baptist and now I'm converted to Presbyterianism, uh, which is not a big move actually. <laughs> um, and during my formative years uh, in my Christian faith, I attended a Baptist Caucasian church. And then subsequently after that, I transferred over to Grace Baptist Church, not Grace Baptist, Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, uh, the famous um, church pastored by John MacArthur. All right, so if you know the name, uh, he is very much a cessationalist. And I was an intern at that church for three to four years. I sat through all his lectures and, uh, and, and, and messages for about three years. So I have that kind of a DNA or background in my mind. Uh, but then, of course, and then after that, I went to Dallas Seminary, 
where many of the faculty members there are cessationalists. That means they don't believe the gifts are in operation today. Uh, then after that, I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, where I did a PhD in intercultural studies. So now my views began to widen a little bit more because the faculty was represented by various different views. And that's really the beauty of that school uh, is that they don't want to, you know, have you just, you know, see one box. They want to see, help you to see all the boxes. Um, and so I was uh, exposed uh, there and taught by uh, people from different perspectives and, and obviously uh, by Wayne Grudem as well. Now, when I talk about views or positions, um, these views represented in this book are, are what uh, academics like myself consider as heuristic positions, meaning that they are constructed for the purpose of teaching. The views are in actuality, in real life, at the ground level where people live and where people practice the Christian faith are not as neatly compartmentalized as uh, they are in this text, all right? So there's a huge difference between the academics and, let's say, ground level. So what I'm presenting to you today is more of a, a very heuristic, a very neatly tidy, you know, presentation on the various different views. Uh, and toward the end of the talk, hopefully you'll come to at least come to understand or appreciate what are the views, how do they read Scripture differently, uh, and begin to understand what are the contentious issues uh, at stake. Uh, and then hopefully, I mean, I think your pastoral staff in the succeeding coming weeks will then follow up on this talk uh, and drill down a little bit further uh, to flesh out uh, what I am giving you today, which is basically a survey. All right, so this is where we're going this morning. And um, I, uh, I want to say uh, that, first of all, when we come to the introduction on this topic, uh, really my principal focus would be on several passages in the book of Acts uh, and on 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14, because these are the principal texts uh, that the New Testament deals with concerning tongues. Now, when you come to the latter part of 1 Corinthians, of course, Paul uh, is concerned uh, about how some people in Corinth at that time uh, regarded uh, the spiritual gifts uh, to be, you know, uh, is this something that is reserved just for the super elite, uh, the super spiritual people? Uh, who are these people? And so, uh, right away, uh, in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, now concerning spirituals. Right? In your Bible, you'll see that the, in the English text, the gifts, the word gifts is in italics. That means it does not exist in the original text. All right? So what he's saying here, right off the bat, is a concerning spiritual. In other words, he's talking about what does it mean to be a spiritual, um, what is spirituality? Right? That's what he's really saying. You don't understand what he's really referring to, which is spiritual gifts, until you come to verse 4. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same uh, spirit. So what he's saying in this passage in uh, chapter 12 and verse four, uh, 12 to 14, he's addressing this issue of spirituality. And he's saying that, you know, even though, you know, there are many gifts in the body of Christ, you know, and he's talking about tongues here in the Greek term is glossolalia, uh, is really just one of the nine uh, charisma or gifts, grace gifts of the New Testament. 
and they are given uh, by the Spirit, all right? They're given by the Spirit. The charismata, the, the, the spiritual gifts are given by God. And that's really what uh, characterizes spirituality, is what kind of gifts a person is endowed with uh, and how you uh, exercise them, how do you use them, right? Um, so this matter of tongues, uh, you'll see later on that Paul is saying that that's really just one of the many gifts, all right? And so don't make a big deal of it and, and don't try to make it more than really what it is. And so that's really his point. So tongues, in, by way of introduction, uh, basically has two functions. And these are all disputed uh, in the academic circle. Uh, first of all, in the book of Acts, it's really just occurring in about two, three, maybe no more than five passages in the book of Acts with regards to how tongues uh, was practiced. And obviously there are many uh, contentious uh, questions as to really how tongues uh, operated uh, in the book of Acts. Is it uh, authenticating the message of the apostles? And so therefore, when the apostles are no longer around, uh, there's really no more need uh, for the tongues to operate. Uh, one of the more recent views on this is that in the book of Acts, tongues actually serves as an authenticating gift meant to affirm a new group entering into the church. All right, so this is a bit different than the original view, which is to say that the tongues were authenticating the apostolic message. Uh, so if you read through uh, from Acts chapter 2 all the way to uh, Acts chapter 19, uh, you'll see that the gospel goes from Jerusalem, and then it goes into Samaria, and then it goes into uh, Ephesus, and then into the remotest parts of the earth. And each time when the gospel is transferred from one group, one ethnic group to another, um, tongues are exhibited. All right? So this is really one of the ways in which to look at how tongues function in the book of Acts. Another uh, way to look at tongues uh, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14. There, Paul talks about tongues as functioning as a spiritual gift. Now, that wasn't the case in the book of Acts. But in here, uh, there is a, a big jump now, a, 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 a sort of a new development in terms of what was the purpose of tongues. Uh, it was a spiritual gift bestowed upon select individuals to build up the body, to build up the church, and to build up uh, one's own spiritual life. So you can tell that even in these two um, portions of the New Testament, uh, the operation of tongues uh, was quite different, all right? We go a little bit. So then, really, what are the key issues concerning this uh, topic of tongues, all right? Uh, and again, I'm speaking in very heuristic terms, meaning very t neat and tidy, uh, according to an academic's per uh, perspective. At the ground level, uh, these views may be very different. Um, one of the key issues is that uh, what exactly is the nature of speaking in tongues, uh, especially in the New Testament, namely the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians? Uh, at stake is the issue of whether the tongues spoken at that time, uh, whether they were unknown or known languages. In other words, someone who has never been trained in German uh, you know, all of a sudden when the Holy Spirit came upon that person was able to speak in German, all right? And so when I was in Korea, uh, uh, 
for about three years or so. I was teaching in Korea, and so there I encounter a lady, a Korean lady, who spoke no English or very little English. She she told me that when she uh, when the Holy Spirit came upon her, she began to speak in tongues, and she said she began to speak in Queen's English perfectly. All right. In other words, she's never been trained. She's never been to England. And uh, so when you're talking with her uh, at that time, you know, she was able to speak very fluently. She never learned. She never went to class. She never went to a, you know. So this is just something very, very extraordinary, all right? Uh, So what is the question here is that are the tongues spoken unknown or known languages? And some would say that maybe they are, are they really just one or the other? Uh, more and more people are saying that they are both and. So there are known languages, and they uh, can also be ecstatic uh, utterances. In other words, some of the tongues that I have seen uh, today that I have experienced uh, were what some of us would call uh, considered to be ecstatic utterances. In other words, um, I, don't un- I don't have an idea what they're saying, and since many places don't interpret uh, these are really unknown human languages. At least maybe they're ancient or maybe they're no longer around. Uh, and so there's really no way to decipher uh, what these tongues were saying. All right, so that's a key issue. All right. Uh, I think the, another key issue is that uh, is the Holy Spirit still dispensing this gift today and is it still in operation, right? Uh, many people, cessationalists, uh, especially people from Westminster Seminary, from the Reform uh, Presbyterian uh, point of view, uh, would say that the tongues have ceased uh, at the end of the apostolic era since the tongues were meant to authenticate the apostles' message. So once the apostles passed on and the uh, tongues were given to them, uh, authenticating that they were indeed legitimate uh, servants of God, uh, there was no more need for them, and so the tongues went away. All right. And especially since the New Testament canon was closed uh, by the third or maybe even the fourth century or so. All right. So this is uh, really uh, one of the main issues today. Of course, some, if you go to the charismatic and uh, even as far as the Pentecostal uh, assemblies of God denominations, they would say tongues are very much alive today and they are still in operation. Uh, and then, of course, the third uh, point of contention is what some of us call uh, what exactly is the nature of the baptism with the Spirit or baptism in the Spirit uh, all about? Uh, is this something that is a phenomenon uh, subsequent to conversion? All right? And really, what people are asking here at this point is that they say if you go to the book of Acts, and there are a number of these people who were Christians already. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They accepted the Lord. Some of them were even baptized. And then the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then some of them began to speak in tongues. So this is uh, a, uh, uh, a so-called a sign or an evidence that uh, baptism of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, is something that happens after you become a Christian. All right? Uh, some people will say, the cessationalists will say, no, baptism of the Spirit really is uh, what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. You've been baptized into the body of Christ there, all right? So they said, no, that, that cannot be a second step. Uh, in the Christian faith, conversion is just one step. 
charismatics, uh, Pentecostals, and some charismatics who say that it is a second step, and you need to seek for that, right? So these are all contentious issues. In terms of the, uh, you know, evangelical camp, uh, and then these are very broad categories. Uh, So those who hold to conversion uh, as really just one step, this is what is called a conversion initiation camp. Uh, the idea of baptism with the Spirit occurs in two passages in Acts, 1.5 and 11.16. All right? And so they say for, for us today, such a baptism takes place at conversion, similar to what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All right? um, but then, of course, uh, those people from the Wesleyan, the Arminian Wesleyan uh, tradition, especially the Wesleyan holiness uh, movement, uh, they definitely seek a second-step uh, experience, meaning that some of them say, uh, you know, if you, you look at the theology of uh, John Wesley, uh, he, talks, he talks about quite a bit uh, about this idea of entire sanctification. They say it's one thing to be a Christian. It's one thing to say that you are a believer, you confess the name of Jesus Christ. But he says at some later point in your life, that's not enough. You need to seek what is called entire sanctification, now, Wesley and, and others really never spelled out what this so-called entire sanctification was all about. But at that point, the person becomes more spirit-filled and is more endowed by the power of the spirit, and tongues can be manifested at that point. All right, so this is what a second step is called. Uh, and then there are those people, uh, the third camp could be charismatic Pentecostals. Some of them now, uh, in fact, I think most of them, would say that, uh, well, we're not cessationalists. Uh, we're not exactly Wesleyan uh, you know, people as well. But they believe that tongues uh, is actually uh, the power given by God for the purpose of witnessing the gospel, especially uh, in missionary context. All right? I have taught, uh, I think, for about 13 years in the United States, here in Asia, and of course uh, in, in, uh, in Korea. And many, there are many charismatics, there are many uh, Pentecostals uh, in Korea, and even people in the Presbyterian churches there speak in tongues. So that is not a unique, I mean, it's not a, a very, you know, different uh, or, or strange phenomenon there. Uh, and so, and they would all say when, you know, in, in my times of uh, teaching in different parts of Asia, there have been many students coming from Myanmar, uh, Bhutan, Korea, uh, I mean, number of countries in, 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 in here in Southeast Asia where students say that, you know, in missionary context, God gives the gift of tongues specifically for the purpose of empowering us to share the gospel. And people come to know the Lord in that way. Very similar to the way the book of Acts works, where the gospel uh, moved from Jerusalem into Samaria and then into uh, Ephesus and into the remotest parts of the earth, uh, each time uh, validating not only the apostles' uh, gospel, but especially now that it's to show the Jewish people that Gentiles now have accepted the gospel and they are legitimate. So therefore, each time it needs to be validated and each time an apostle or church leader needs to go back to Jerusalem and tell them that, hey, uh, the Samaritans are becoming Christians and the uh, Ephesians are becoming Samaritan uh, 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 Christians. So this is a, a, valid, a way of validating the gospel has moved from one people group to another. And so many charismatics and Pentecostals follow this line of reasoning. All right? 
Now, here I name a megachurch in Singapore. This is on their website, uh, and this is their doctrinal statement. This is an example of what we call a second-step experience. Okay? He, they say, we believe in the baptism in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, as a real experience at or subsequent to salvation with the scriptural evidence, namely speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. And of course, they name all the passages uh, in the book of Acts, right? One, two, uh, three, four uh, passages where the gospel moved from one people group to another, from Jerusalem to uh, Samaria, uh, and then into Ephesus, uh, and then further on. I think the 196 passage is Samaria. So they will follow this logic. Then they would say that that's exactly how tongues are operating today, you know. And so this is a key example here in Singapore of a church that believes in tongues as a second step experience. Baptism of the Spirit, uh, enabling people to seek tongues and to speak in tongues at some point in their Christian life uh, as evidence of the fact that they have been baptized in the Spirit uh, as a second step experience, all right? So I won't name the church. You can probably guess. <laughs> all right. So when you come now to the book of uh, Into the Gospels, um, you'll see that the Gospels uh, in academic world is what we call the liminal period. It's, not, it's really belonging to the Old Testament era. Uh, so the Spirit hasn't really come exactly uh, into, uh, you know, as it were in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit came and filled, uh, you know, the disciples uh, in Jerusalem. He hasn't come yet. So it's officially not quite uh, New Testament. But it is in the gospel. Jesus is on the scene, but the Spirit has not come. So this is what we call a liminal period. Uh, and technically, the Spirit's operations still belong and very much uh, like the Old Testament, meaning that the Spirit can come and leave, but never penetrating into the deepest parts of our being and never permanent indwelling uh, a believer at that time. All right? Uh, and so... Uh, uh, but there is an occurrence here. Uh, I, let me skip this. There's an occurrence here uh, where in John chapter 20, verse 21 to 22, and I need to really speed up, uh, in which uh, the Lord, during this uh, liminal period of divine revelation, uh, did something quite unusual. And in chapter 20, verse 21, uh, there, uh, Jesus is about to send his disciples. In verse 21, it says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. All right, so this is a Johannine so-called uh, Great Commission, version of the Great Commission. And then it says in verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If your sins uh, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been forgiven. So many people say, what exactly did Jesus do at that point to breathe the Spirit on them? I mean, Acts chapter 2 has not come yet. So what was this breathing on them? Uh, and there, if you, uh, you read the scholarly uh, circle, you'll have seven or eight different views. I don't have time to name all of them. Uh, suffice to say uh, is that uh, I think the more common view would to say that this was really not the so-called 
what some call the Johannine Pentecost. I mean, you have the Johannine Pentecost, then you have the uh, Jerusalem Pentecost, and then you have the Samaritan Pentecost, and then the Ephesian Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes and, uh, you know, is descending upon us, then you begin to speak out in tongues. So many people say this is a Johannine Pentecost. But I think uh, there would be a lot of pushback on this. What I think most scholars are saying with regards to this occurrence here in uh, uh, John chapter 20 is that Uh, This is really just a proleptic view. In other words, a preview of what will come in fullness uh, in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon uh, the the disciples in the upper room and they began to speak in tongues. All right. So this is a preview. Uh, It's not the permanent, it's not the fullness of the Spirit. So I, I, I show you because depending on how you look at it is that uh especially Pentecostal believers, and I can name one of them, that would be, um, uh, I forget, um, oh, uh, James Dunn. James Dunn wrote a commentary uh, on the book of uh, John, and he's from a Pentecostal background, and he would say that here is an example of a, of a so-called second step, all right? These people, obviously these are the disciples to whom Jesus was speaking, was already, they were already believers. They needed, a, uh, uh, they needed Jesus to infuse them with the Spirit in order for them to go out and witness the gospel. All right? So this is what they mean by a second step. All right? And therefore, if you begin to take this passage to be normative, meaning it didn't happen just back then, it's not just descriptive, but it becomes prescriptive, then it should be a pattern that all believers should follow forever and ever and ever again. And this is really what James Dunn uh, is talking about uh, in his commentary. This is an example of a second step experience. They were already believers, and then Jesus had to breathe on them and empower them. They went out and did witnessing and did evangelism, etc., etc., all right? So, uh, but not all people will agree on this. You go further. Uh, you say there, uh, uh, John chapter 20, 22, likely refers to a private infusing, while Acts 2 was a public empowerment, uh, empowering that inaugurated the new age of the Spirit. So this is a, a more of a consensus in terms of what that meant. But obviously, when we come to the book of Acts, we see uh, the case for glossolalia relies heavily on narrative passages. Uh, and there you, ha- you have it, uh, 1, 5, 2, 4, 8, 4 to 17, you know, and these are all passages, you know, uh, noting about how the gospel moved from Jerusalem to Samaria to Ephesus and the remotest parts of the earth. I don't have time to go, all, go through them, but um, uh, it just seems as if every time uh, a new group of people received the gospel, uh, they received the gospel, and then the, uh, Peter or one of the church leaders would lay hands upon them, and then it says the Holy Spirit would come upon them, and in some cases, they would speak in tongues, but not in all cases. So in these occurrences, tongue speaking was not an even occurrence, all right? It was not even. It did not happen in all or every instance. Uh, and so, but it's important that, especially for Pentecostal charismatic people, that they take the narrative passages of the book of Acts to be not only descriptive, descriptive, but prescriptive, as the, in the case of the megachurch that I just referred to here in Singapore. 
Uh, they would follow this line of logic. It happened then, it should happen today. Um, and so, that definitely, while the theme of tongue speaking is definitely present in the book of Acts, the major theological thrust uh, deals with global mission uh, and not necessarily uh, for the purpose of worship or, or, or private, uh, you know, uh, private worship or private building up your own spirituality. So there are many questions in terms of how we treat the book of Acts. Now, if you go a little bit further, uh, Acts really is about the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the Samaritan Pentecost, uh, to the Gentile Pentecost, you know, dealing with Cornelius in chapter 10, and then the Ephesian Pentecost, all right? So each time when the gospel moves, uh, someone you know, comes to know the Lord, uh, the Spirit comes upon them subsequent to salvation, and then some of them were baptized, and then uh, they were baptized, and some then spoke in tongues, but not in all cases, all right, so this is really how the, the tongues, uh, uh, you know, were treated or how they were seen uh, in Acts. Now, if you go a little bit further than that, it says in addressing the Samaritan Pentecost, Gentile Pentecost, the Ephesian Pentecost, two misconceptions need to be highlighted here. Uh, baptism with the Spirit as a second step filling. Uh, in other words, they say these are examples of second step uh, uh, filling with the Spirit. They're already believers, and then the Spirit came upon them. Then they were baptized. So therefore, it should be normative for today. I say that's really not the right way to look at these passages. Uh, here is that should historical descriptions be used as prescriptions? There are many episodes in Acts where tongues are not initiatory experiences. So it's not a, it, there's no consistency. Sometimes they spoke in tongues, sometimes they don't speak in tongues. So we cannot use this as um, prescription uh, for what happened historically. That's what I think. Um, and then in addressing the Samaritan, let me see. Uh, uh, let me see, did I miss a slide? Okay, yeah. Um, here on point number two, tongues, uh, in fact, were treated as a sign gift to authenticate the apostolic message. In actuality, in actuality, they authenticated the addition of a new group to the church for the sake of those in Jerusalem. This is to tell the Jewish people, the Jewish church, that a new group, a Gentile group, has accepted the gospel. And they needed to be um, validated just as the, the, the Spirit came upon uh, the believers in, uh, in Jerusalem and they spoke in tongues, and now this is being repeated uh, in other um, uh, you know, uh, in other settings. Now, what is really in question is when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14. Here, uh, tongues do not appear to be authenticating the gospel, the uh, apostolic message. Neither does it seem to be confirming the gospel going from one people group to another. Here, Paul is talking about um, worship, a worship context in the church in Corinth. Tongues are no longer treated as apologetic proof of the movement of the gospel, but as part of the worship there in Corinth. Uh, so, and one of the questions that, you know, that I think we need to ask here, and which has a variety of different uh, responses, is that are the tongues spoken in 1 Corinthians, namely 12 to 14, different than those in Acts. For sure, the tongues spoken in Acts were known human languages. 
All right? In other words, people were able to speak a, a, a language, a known language, or at least a, a language that has been taught before, who has spe- spoken before, uh, in, a, in a very miraculous way. They were able to do it without having the benefit of being trained or being taught in it. It was, it was definitely a, a supernatural thing. Uh, are the tongues spoken in Corinthians different than in Acts? And of course, the answer to that question is very, very, uh, uh, you know, it's disputed. Um, because they say the, uh, the basic problem at Corinth was elevating tongues to the greatest gifts and the lack of Christian love. Paul seemingly considers it the least of the gifts. And so Paul is uh, criticizing the Corinthians for making a, you know, uh, uh, you know, a mountain out of a molehill. You know, why are you making such a big deal out of this? You know, uh, because what we see here, uh, especially in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 12 and 13, is also whether the tongues were not only a, a known language or maybe an unknown language. Because you see in chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men, known language, and of angels, okay? So is this a unlearned or unknown language? Was it a, you know? And so there are many, especially Pentecostals and and charismatic people will say that uh, tongues don't have to be uh, known human languages. We can speak in um, ecstatic utterances so long as they are being interpreted, all right? And so the, the nature of tongues in the book of Acts uh, were, was very different than what you find in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12 to 13. I mean, on this point now, uh, really, what value is there to tongues if it's not interpreted? That's what, really what Paul is saying. And he goes on to say that uh, Paul recognizes the validity of tongues as a spiritual gift. Nonetheless, is relegated, I mean, in other words, he says, don't do it in public, uh, do it in your own private devotion, uh, and it must not be, you know, done in a worship, uh, you know, setting, uh, and if it is going to be done in a worship uh, setting, it needs to be done with dignity uh, and in order, and it should be, obviously, be interpreted. Right? That's what he's trying to say here. So what Paul was saying here in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is that he did not forbid tongues as long as, as it is expressed in a fitting and orderly manner. Now, when I ex, you know, visited some churches in Singapore that spoke in tongues, and I visited them for the purpose of learning and to experience what was going on, and in the few cases where I had this experience, I mean, tongues broke out when the pastor began to preach or when the pastor began to pray, and things were going all over the place, and I have no idea what they were saying, all right? I'm just an innocent bystander. But so I observed, as far as I can tell, and with very little, you know, experience of languages, linguistic patterns, I could not detect that any one of them were actually known human languages. So this is some of the difficulties that I think for someone from a more conservative background would have uh, in venues when tongues today, uh, breaks, when tongues break out, and really no one knows what they're saying. And obviously in the few times that I experienced them, uh, they were not interpreted and, and just went on like this. And so in a way, in, in these examples, uh, they actually were exactly what Paul was speaking against. He said, he's not forbidding the tongue speaking. Uh, you do it in private, fine. 
You do it in a public manner, fine. But it must, must be done in an orderly manner, in a dignified manner, and needs to be interpreted. That's what he's saying. All right? I have very close friends, and they are my friends, dear friends, who speak in tongues. I have colleagues at SBC who speak in tongues. And they do it privately. I, I mean, uh, and, and, you know, Wayne Grudem speaks in tongues privately. Uh, and of course, for a number of years, he was uh, involved with the John Wimber uh, uh, Vineyard Movement. And he's a, he's a fabulous theologian, very conservative, you know. And so who, who are we to argue? I mean, how do we adjudicate? How do we evaluate uh, these different experiences, you know? Uh, and so some of the questions that we really need to ask when we confront this issue about tongues, there are really just two issues that we need to ask ourselves. Number one is that are tongues for every age, right? And of course, the, when you look at the spectrum of views out there, they will answer them very differently. Second question, are the tongues the necessary sign of baptism with or in the Spirit? Pentecostals was use the word in the Spirit, all right? Uh, in other words, if you've been, uh, uh, you're a Christian, uh, and you are seeking now a second step experience called baptism in the Spirit. And most Pentecostals, if I'm not mistaken, at least according to the book, would say that uh, tongues need to accompany, they must accompany baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I have had friends in the U.S. who say that, okay, you're a believer, and you believe in the baptism with the Spirit, and I say, I believe in that. I believe it as uh, I become a Christian, I've been baptized with the Spirit. But they say, no, baptism with the Spirit is a second step that comes later. And when you receive it, you need to ask God to give you the gift of tongues. And they say, and I have been spoken to uh, by people, if you do not speak the t- uh, in tongues, you may not even be a believer. Uh, so that's a very extreme view. Uh, I don't know how many people, how many Pentecostals actually say that now, but they say, well, if you don't speak in tongues, you need to speak it. You need to seek it, and eventually it will come because it must accompany the second step experience called baptism in the Spirit. So if you are a non-cessationalist, that means you don't believe that tongues operate today, how would you answer these two questions? Okay. Pentecostals and most charismatic answer, oh, excuse me, non-cessational. If you are charismatic or Pentecostal, uh, you would answer both questions, yes. They do uh, operate today, and, and, and you should seek tongues uh, as a result of baptism with the Spirit or in the Spirit. Uh, and they would make a clear distinction between uh, baptism with the Spirit and tongues, uh, in, in meaning that uh, in Acts and tongues uh, later on, uh, meaning that even though you've been baptized with the Spirit or in the Spirit, you may not be able to speak in tongues at this point, but you should seek it, all right? And so the former uh, is for every believer, baptism with the Spirit. The latter is given to those whom the Spirit chooses. So if you've been baptized with the Spirit or in the Spirit and you have not spoken in tongues yet, you need to seek to be able to speak in tongues, all right? And you, uh, you, you know, the Spirit will, 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 will give it. But this statement says, uh, whom he chooses. He may not have chosen you at this point, but he should choose you at a later point. Is there a point missing here? Okay. Um, the next point here, oh, okay, here it goes. Since glossolalia is the initial uh, evidence of the spirit baptism, 
every believer should seek it. And that's what they're saying uh, because the two go hand in hand. Uh, and so then they would also say that the outbreak of tongues in the, second, uh, in the 20th century uh, refers to the autumn rains uh, prophesied in the last days. Um, if you are cessational, meaning that you don't believe that tongues uh, actually are in operation today, you would answer no to both questions. No, they don't operate today. Uh, and of course, uh, baptism of the Spirit does not happen and tongues don't come with it. This is really more the reform Presbyterian uh, view. Uh, supernatural gifts cease at the end of the apostolic era and, are, and, and have gradually faded away. Uh, sign gifts were meant to authenticate the message of the apostles. And so since the apostles have come, they have written the New Testament and uh, given their message. There's no more need to authenticate the validity of the message with the gift of tongues. Um, and they go on to say that the perfect in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, verse 10 there, because Paul says in verse 8, he says, love never fails, but if there are uh, gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So the question is that when will the, the tongues cease? Or when will they cease? Or as if you are cessational, you would say that they have already ceased uh, at the close of the, uh, at the apostolic era. And so they would say that in verse 10, they say, uh, but when the perfect comes, the partial, meaning tongues, will be done away. So how do you then define what is the partial gift that God has given, uh, in, you know, namely tongues? Uh, what is that partial? And when is the perfect? When, when will the perfect come? Or when has the perfect already arrived? That's the main question. So they would say here, uh, if you read uh, Richard Gaffin's uh, text uh, in uh, this book, they said the perfect in 1 Corinthians 13.10 refers to the close of the canon. In other words, once the canon has already been closed, some say maybe third, fourth century, there was no more need for apostolic uh, validation of, of, you know, uh, of the, the apostles' message. So the tongues were done away with. They slowly uh, ceased. They slowly you know, went out of power or went out of fashion. And uh, this idea of the, the Greek word there is pausentai, and uh, uh, it comes from the verb uh, paul, meaning that uh, it will cease. It will cease, and in the, the making the point of that in the grammar is the, called the middle voice, is, is saying that it will, do, it will cease by itself. It will just run out of power. Uh, when the perfect comes. So the question is, when did the perfect come? And they would say the perfect came at the close of the canon. Uh, that is the cessationalist view. Now, there, is, uh, there are some, a growing number of people who would call themselves, put themselves in the camp called the middle position. They would say yes to the first question, which is, uh, are tongues for every age? Yes, they say tongues still are ca being carried out today. Uh, but they would say no to the second question. You know, uh, must tongues come with baptism of the Spirit? They said, no, it doesn't have to. Uh, do we need to seek, seek a second step, uh, spirituality, baptism of the Holy Spirit? No, they say, all right? So uh, this is a, a more moderate view. So then they would say they define that term perfect in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, 10, not as referring to the close of the apostolic canon or the, the New Testament canon or the close of the apostolic message, 
Uh, the Greek word there is tatelion. That means at the end. They would say that the perfect refers to the perfect age or the eternal state. Some, like D.A. Carson, would say that the tatelion there refers to uh, the parousia or the arrival or the second coming of Jesus. Right? So this is what the middle camp is saying. So if you talk to someone like a D.A. Carson who's quite conservative, he would say, theoretically, we cannot say that the, pung- the tongues have ceased at the close of the canon. All right? Because the, the perfect there is referring to the parousia, the second coming of Christ. And since Christ has not come yet, you cannot say definitely, as with the cessationists, that tongues have drifted away or no longer exist. And he would say that the reason why his view is correct is because that in uh, verse 12, he says, for, he goes on to say, Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will, uh, will know fully just as I also have been known. So in other words, he's saying that verse there is referring to when a believer faces Jesus face to face. When does it happen? When we see him when he comes back. Uh, And since he hasn't come back, at least on a theoretical, very theological level, tongues have not stopped. But it does not, Carson would go on to say, he completely rejects this idea that Scripture uh, approves of uh, a second-step experience whereby baptism of the Spirit is something that you should seek later on and that it comes with tongues. He would completely reject that. He would also reject the cessationalist view, meaning that tongues have ceased at the apostolic era or at the close of the canon. So this is the more middle position. Uh, And I think more and more people are drifting toward this middle section uh, in the sense that uh, Paul says, do not forbid uh, speaking in tongues, though not all speak in tongues. Uh, The gift of tongues is not the the initial sign of spirit baptism since there was no consistent patterns uh, in the book of Acts. It's not consistent there, all right? And so when we come to some conclusions, and I know I've gone over 10 minutes, uh, conclusions, this is, I think, really at the state of scholarship in the evangelical world, is that while the Bible does not explicitly teach that tongues have ceased since we define the tatelion there as the second coming and not the close of the canon. Teach that tongues have ceased uh, or are relegated to the first century. Many are cautious about how many modern-day practices really do not conform to the Bible because someone like a Carson would say that tongues spoken in Acts and in 1 Corinthians were known languages. And since many of the so-called tongue-speaking today don't seem to uh, reveal that they were actually known languages, they were more utterances, so therefore Carson would say they're false. They don't really exist. But he would say theoretically, theologically, tongues may not have ceased yet. So we have to be very cautious with how we look at this phenomenon today. So he would take a more open but cautious view. Another conclusion that we can draw from here is that rather than miraculous gifts, the church should emphasize, I mean, why are, we, why are we so bogged down with tongues and prophecy and healing and all these other things? The church has much better things to do. Focus instead on evangelism, Bible study, and faithful obedience as keys to personal uh, growth and church growth, 
all right? So this is more a, a middle position. Our attitude should be, although uh, we cannot rule out tongues have ceased, our attitude should be seek not, but yet forbid not. Uh, this is kind of a, the way uh, things are being taught today. Pentecostals, uh, on the other hand, Pentecostals and Charismatics have contributed to refreshing uh, worship and renewal in faith. So they have contributed something. Although I think people like uh, Carson and, uh, uh, and Robert Sosi would say that there is just too much abuse today of this, uh, of this area, of this practice. Even though we cannot say explicitly uh, this, uh, the tongues have ceased. Uh, until the Lord returns, or prior to the Lord returns, okay? So, I think that's basically it. I've gone through a lot of material with you. Uh, Sorry I went overboard a little bit. So here are some discussion questions for you, uh, if you care to stay behind. (laughs) Okay, okay. Okay, what new insights, if any, uh, did you gain from the presentation today? (laughs) Uh, But really, when we get to the bottom of this, what really is at stake? In other words, why are we even bothering with this? Uh, theologically, spiritually, and ministerially, if one holds tongues or not, what's the big deal, right? Uh, why do you suppose the subject of tongues is still controversial or divisive in Singapore today? And I think it's, uh, the subject is. And so uh, I'll leave it now to your leader. Uh, oh, Pastor Peter will come. 